So this morning we are continuing our series. Um, we're, called, we're calling it Tuned In, the Gospel According to Paul. Um, and what we're doing is we're taking a look at all of Paul's sermons in the book of Acts. There's several of them. Now, um, many of us assume that the gospel is kind of a straightforward idea, right? We believe something like Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and if we believe, we will be saved, something like that. And in its simplest form, that basically sums up what the gospel of Jesus is all about. However, what we're trying to notice in this series is that the good news of Jesus, it impacts each of us differently individually. And Paul was a master of understanding this. Um, depending on the audience that the Apostle Paul was talking to in the book of Acts, Paul preached the good news of Jesus differently, and he did so often. And it's because he understood something fun fundamental about the gospel, fundamental about the good news, and that is the good news is good news to each of us differently, depending on where we come from in our life circumstances and our culture and all of that stuff. And so this morning we want to dive into that a little further and take a look at the Apostle Paul's, probably his greatest sermon, and uh, to take a look at just how he approached the good news with a specific set of people. Um, it's his sermon on uh, Mars Hill, as some have called it, or the Areopagus, others have called it as well. It's found in Acts 17, verse 22 through 35. Um, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there with me. Um, and then our scripture reader this morning is Matthew Pearson. Matthew, you can head on up when you're ready. In church, what we do here when we read scripture together is we stand, if you're able to, and we face the center of the room. And we do so because we need the reminder every single week just at how central this book is. The scriptures matter. It's, the, it's really the story of Jesus, the good news. So Matthew, when you're ready, take it away. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made this world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he, should, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Arabocopus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you, Matthew. You all may be seated. 
Now, some of us have heard this passage before. Perhaps some of us are very familiar with this passage. Um, but there is something important about um, the context in which it was spoken. Uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking to a particular people whenever he gave the Mars Hill sermon. And, and it actually tells us who the audience is. If, if you look in your Bibles a couple of verses earlier than our scripture reading, you'll find it in Acts 17, 18. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Um, a second. And this is what Acts says. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so what we have here is we have the Apostle Paul preaching the good news in the city of Athens. And as he's around preaching the gospel, at some point these philosophers approach him and he starts to dialogue with these philosophers. And the scriptures say that these philosophers um, are from two different philosophies, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so Paul begins to speak with them, and through all sorts of different reasons, he ends up almost in this courtroom case where these people are asking him questions, and then he was to speak for himself. And so Paul's speech, his sermon, is essentially him defending himself and proclaiming the good news in front of this um, council, including these Epicureans and these Stoics. And to really understand what Paul is doing in this passage, there's a few things we need to understand about Stoics and Epicureans. Now, if you were to watch an Epicurean philosopher from 2,000 years ago live his life, get up in the morning, all that kind of stuff, and then you were to compare that to a Stoic philosopher and the same thing with him, the way he lived his life, what you would notice is they live very, very different lives. Yet, despite their differences, what's interesting is that they held uh, many similar core beliefs. See, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they both believed in a god or they believed in multiple gods. Uh, depending on who you talk to, they would tell you probably a different answer. But they believed that there was such thing as a divinity. And they believed that the gods or, or God um, was deistic in nature. Deism was the right word. Deism simply means that um, God dwells very far from his creation or far from people, far, far away, where there's really no contact. In fact, deism means that the, the God or the gods, they don't even have interest in humanity. They don't even want to deal with humans on any level at all. So the Stoics and Epicureans were deists. They were also pantheists at the same time. And pantheism is a big fancy word for saying that they believed that God was somehow intricately connected with matter or creation or the rest of the world to the point where you couldn't differentiate between what God is and what matter is because they were essentially one and the same. Like when I preach, I preach off of this iPad. And this iPad, if we were living in a pantheist world, we would say this iPad is made of molecules and atoms and other sciencey things that I won't get into, but I'm an expert. I know a lot about that stuff. Um, yet, even despite all of the matter in this thing, um, spirit, uh, divinity would somehow be in this iPad as well. It kind of is a creepy place to live your life, I think, if you believe that. I don't know. It's just me. Um, so the Stoics and the Epicureans believed that God or the gods were distant and uninterested in the world. 
And then paradoxically, they believed that God or the gods were in fact a part of the world. And it's important to understand these two things because they lead to a couple conclusions for the Epicureans and the Stokes, the way that they think and the way that they live their lives. Deism. God is far, far away. God has no interest in me. Meaning, God doesn't care about me is one of the conclusions they would have made. And then you have pantheism. God is simply a part of creation, a piece of creation. You can't take God out of creation because, in fact, God is part of creation in some sense, meaning that if that's true, then God isn't as powerful as I thought God was, meaning God is unreliable as well. And what do you do with two beliefs like that? God doesn't care about me, and God is unreliable in my life too. It, it actually shapes the way people live. And the Epicureans and Stoics were shaped by this. It meant for them in particular that they couldn't really believe that there was an afterlife. Because if God wants nothing to do with creation, and God isn't all that powerful because he's a part of creation, well then there's very, very slim chances that there's anything that happens when we die, right? It's, there's nothing else there. There's no heaven for sure is what the Stoics and the Epicureans believed. And because of this, they both had an anxiety around the topic of death because they couldn't quite figure out what to do with it and what it means. Because how do you grapple with death if you know for a fact that when you die, like that's it, the lights go out and they never turn back on again? How do you live a meaningful life in the midst of that? And that's where the Stoics and the Epicureans begin to look like very different people and different beliefs because they practice their beliefs differently. The Stoic, the Stoic's answer for this anxiety around death, the fact that, you know, there's death at the end of the day is the way you find meaning in your life, the way you find meaning in your life is through self-control. The way you find meaning in your life is through virtue. It's through controlling your surroundings and controlling yourself really closely. And by the way of doing that, you'll feel safe, you'll feel secure, you'll feel good in the life that you have. And then when you die, at least you'll know you lived a good, secure life. You want to have an impeccable morality, the, sto the Stoist would say. And that's how you cope with the reality that there is this thing called death that's coming for you and there's nothing after it. And then the Epicureans, they basically did the opposite of the Stoic. They said, okay, if, if there's a God and this God doesn't care about me and this God's not all that powerful to do anything meaningful in my life, well, and I'm going to die and then like that's going to be the end of it. That's the whole thing. Basically, uh, the Epicurean said, um, YOLO, baby, YOLO, right? Like that five-year-old cool phrase, bringing it back this morning. Uh, YOLO, you only live once, right? And so what you're going to do is you need to um, eat really well and drink really well and party really well and do whatever you want. You soak in life as much as you can soak in life. Enjoy it because when the party ends and the lights go out, the party ends. It's over. So you might as well take in as much as you can now, right? Now, I think Epicureanism and Stoicism are still alive and well today in our lives, even in the way many of us think. Many of us in this space profess that we believe in God, right? We profess that we believe that. And then when we compare that to the way that we live our lives and the things that motivate the decisions that we make, sometimes they don't line up all that well. 
You know, sometimes for some of us, our lives might look like the Epicureans and we treat our lives like consumerism does, right? We want to soak up life to the max, get as much out of it as we can possibly get out of life. We want to take the great vacations. We want to eat the best food. We want to own a night, like really nice things and big homes and nice cars and great clothing, all that stuff. We want all of those things. YOLO, right? It's basically Epicureanism. It's basically what it is. It's that we actually don't trust God. We don't actually believe that God is present and interested in us and powerful enough to do anything. So we just go off and do our own thing. YOLO, you only live once, right? And then many of us might take the stoic route. And we have lots and lots of control over our lives because we simply can't trust that God is interested enough in us or reliable enough in our lives. So we need to be reliable ourselves. And so we come up with rules and we follow the rules of culture or we follow the rules of our family or the rules of society or we make up our own rules and we follow those rules and we follow them really closely, really tightly. And we do so because if we can control ourselves in a chaotic world, at least that's something, right? We'll feel okay then the world will feel like a safer place if we can follow all the rules. It's basically stoicism in our lives, bleeding in. You see, Paul, he preaches in Acts 17, and he, is, he seeks to address those two concerns. Does God care about me? And is God unreliable? Is he? And his whole message is about tackling those two things. And it's really interesting how Paul goes about doing that. You know, the first thing he does might make some of us feel uncomfortable. Like maybe he's giving in to culture or something like that. But really the first thing Paul does in his message is Paul affirms the philosopher's worldview. At least as much of it as he can. He affirms all kinds of it. Um, if you have your Bibles, open to Acts 17, starting in verse uh, 24. I want to read some of this so you can see it. So what Paul says, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. You see in this chunk of Paul's sermon he affirms much of what Stoics and Epicureans at the time already believed. Like if you look in verse 24 of your scripture reading talks about God not living in temples built by human hands. The Stoics and the Epicureans would have said, uh, yeah, we can affirm that. Of course the gods don't do that. God is far away. God is not invested in these things at all. In verse 25, Paul says, God doesn't need anything from humans, basically. Anything at all. And they would say, of course the gods don't need anything from humans at all. The gods don't even like being around humans, yet need something from them. Yeah, of course. We can agree with you, Paul. And then in verses 25 through 27, Paul basically, he paints a picture of what God did in the past, which many of the Stoics and Epicureans would have agreed with as well. Sure, God was active in the past. 
Maybe God even created everything. We can accept all of that, Paul. We can accept that. Too bad God or the gods don't care anymore today, Paul. And it's not simply that Paul's affirming their worldview. He actually uses their own philosophers to say, hey, we have some common ground here. In verse 28, Paul writes, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. For in him we live and move and have our being. Some of us love that phrase, and it's actually a Greek philosophy before it was in the Bible. It's kind of interesting to think about that. Maybe that ruined your day. I don't know. Then there's others of us. Um, as some of your own poets have said, Paul says, we are his offspring. That's from a, a, a philosopher named Eridus at the time. Now, if Paul were to stop preaching his sermon right here, the Stoics and the Epicureans would have said, Paul, what's your point, man? You haven't said anything new. Like we can pretty much buy all of what you just said. We already agree with basically all of this. But Paul is being strategic here. He says, hey, we have some common ground here. He says, we have a common worldview in some sense. And then he says, but next I want to try to expand your worldview. And he begins to do that in verse 29 of our scripture reading. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. Paul says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, Paul says, God is not made of gold or silver or stone or matter or anything physical. And Paul says, for we are God's offspring. And, and if we are God's offspring, if we are God's children in some sense, then God must be more like us than gold or silver or stone or matter. You see, what Paul is getting at here is a really important thing for us to understand today and certainly for the philosophers back then, but it's that God is a person. God is a relational being. We are God's offspring. We are the living example of how God relates to the world. It looks something like this. Maybe we're broken and all that stuff, but it's going to look in the ballpark like something like this. See, the city of Athens where Paul was preaching, it was a religious city. And it was filled with temples and altars and religious symbols and all of that kind of stuff. And all the gods, everyone knew in Athens that all the gods were impersonal. They were impersonal. The only thing that people in Athens knew of the gods were what, what they could see in the temples and altars and religious symbols. Like, that's it. That's all they could see from the gods. But Paul says something different. Paul says the God of the Bible is a living present, relational God. Paul actually says, if you look closely, God speaks to us. Like God actually speaks to you and to me. If we listen close enough, God speaks to us. It's not just that God speaks to us. It's that God actually cares about us, which is revolutionary in the ancient world. The gods don't care. No, but this God this God actually cares about you. 
In fact, God, who Paul says is completely outside of creation, like completely outside of it, completely distant from creation in some sense, right? Almost in the sense of deism, like they could understand. That God later decided to become one with creation and matter in the person of Jesus. And why did that God decide to do that? It's all about relationship with you and me and the philosophers 2,000 years ago. It's all about relationship. And you see, it's not just that God cares, but it's that God is reliable too. You see, after seeking to expand the Epicureans and the Stoics' worldview, Paul then moves forward and says, I'm going to try to redeem your worldview. And that happens in verse 31 of our scripture reading, if, if you're following along. It says, um, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says that God entered this world and that this one man came to bring judgment and justice to the world. Now, some of us, when we read that, we think judgment and justice, yeesh, that sounds like a bad thing. Like, I don't know if I want to be a part of that, right? Like judgment always seems to have a negative connotation in our culture. But Paul says, no, no, it's different than that. You see, in the Greek, the ancient Greek, diekosune is the Greek word. And yes, it means justice, but it also means righteousness. What he's saying is God sent a man, one man, to come into the world to make things right again in the world, to fix the world. And if you want proof of this one man going into the world to fix the world, Paul says this one man came into the world, this one man died in the world, and this one man was resurrected. And resurrection is what justice looks like for God. That's justice according to to God. Now, if you're a philosopher right now, you're getting excited because they're really scared of death. This idea of resurrection has to be like, tell me more about that thing. Because the philosophers just couldn't figure it out. What do you do with death? And now there's this resurrection thing. And frankly, I'm not sure we're all that different today than them. We have an angst around death in our culture, don't we? We, we've actually created systems in our society where we can distance ourselves from death more and more and more and more. Like we have a hospital across the street. They're going to deal with the death part. We can go and be a part of it for a second. And then when the person dies, the loved one dies, that person is going to disappear and we don't have to be around that anymore, right? We've kind of washed ourselves from this idea of death. We have these things called hospice. When people are dying, they go into this place called hospice because we don't really feel all that comfortable being around people like that. We distance ourselves. It's what we do as a culture because death is scary to us just like it was to the philosophers. We have people who take our dead loved ones and they wash their bodies and they clean them up and they get them dressed and all of that stuff so that they can have a funeral. We don't do any of that stuff and we wouldn't do that stuff, would we? Because we're kind of freaked out about death. In some sense, being scared of death is what the world looks like without a firm belief in the living God. That's what it feels like. And Paul says, this one man that God appointed 
died. And this one man that God appointed didn't stay that way. Because the God of the Bible resurrected this one man. And you see, in that moment of the resurrection, the one man defeated death, not just for himself, but it was a promise to the rest of us that death had a shelf life. That's a really big deal. The one man took on all the death in the entire world, had it, uh, and took all of it upon himself. And the result was, even with all that death, was that this one man still was resurrected because our God is that powerful. Amen? That one man is Jesus, of course. And that one man cares about you. He cares about you. That's why he did all of that. And that one man wants to be present with you, wants a relationship with you. That one man is reliable for you. And that one man is reliable enough to save us from death, to give us an afterlife. See, the good news for the Apostle Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill is that Jesus defeated death for you and for me. And all Jesus asks for in return is to trust him. Just trust him. You're going to be okay. Jesus says, can you trust me this morning? Even right now, can you trust me? As you look at your life, and maybe you're one of those people that's scared of death, or maybe your life looks a little bit more like a stoic and you're trying to control everything in your life just to make sure that everything's okay. Or maybe you're the Epicurean and you're just going to live in excess so that you don't have to think about all the bad stuff in life. Jesus says, trust me. Trust me. It will change everything. Are you willing to trust Jesus today? Some of us actually have never done that before. Perhaps Jesus this morning is calling out to you and saying, you can trust me. I've got you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God that is not distant, but you're a God who is near that you're a God who cares, that you're a God who speaks to us and relates to us, that you're a powerful God that can overcome the worst in the world, God, and it's not even hard for you. God, we recognize this morning that many of us, we just plain struggle to believe that sometimes. We struggle to believe that Jesus' story is as powerful as you say it is. We struggle, we own that, we bring that before you. God, help us to trust that you've got this world, that you've got us. We don't have to be scared of death. We don't have to numb out. We don't have to power up, God. You've got us. Help us to trust you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me leave you with a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord raise his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen, church.